Amen. Go ahead, have a seat. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, my name is Ken. I get to be the campus pastor here. Uh, and again, if you're like what uh, Pastor Aaron said on the video, if you've never filled out that connection card, go ahead and do that during the next few minutes. And then after service, we got a gift for you uh, out in our uh, out at the welcome table. And you can also grab some coffee or a donut for uh, being your first time here in our cafe as you leave today. So today, we're talking about something uh, that all of us interact with in one shape perform, and some of us might even have for ourselves. Uh, no, you can't tell it for yourself. Somebody has to tell you. And this is the idea of angry resting face, all right? It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're an angry person. This strictly has to do with how you look from about here to here and whether just looking at you, people get the impression that either you're happy or you're angry. And again, it has nothing to do with you. It's just the way that you look. If people look at you, do they think you're angry or do they think you're totally peaceful? Which one is it? And what we're going to look at today is an instance where Jesus tells a story about angry resting face. Although it's not angry resting face the way that Jesus talks about it or the way that we understand it. The way that Jesus talks about it is angry resting face of the soul. What's going on in our heart that people can take a snap guess at and think, oh, they're just angry. That's just who they are. No, no, no. This is just the way that I look. So for me, angry resting face became a thing for me about nine years ago. That was when uh, I saw some pictures of me reading to the kids head down and saw that I permanently had a mohawk here. The only thing was, is regardless of what my hairstyle was, I always had a little bit of hair here. And I thought, you know what? There's a little bit of here and nothing here and here. So when we get home, because I was at somebody else's house seeing the pictures, I'm shaving my head. Like, that's just no longer, that's not going to be me anymore. I am shaving everything, not just having this little bit coming out into the forehead. And one thing that one of you, one of you taught me, this is a Mountain View Sunnyside person, is they said, after I shaved my head nine years ago, she said, suddenly, for the first time ever, Ken looks tough. I'm like, man, I'm never growing hair again. Like, I'm going to push into this, because for, for the first time in my life, I look tough. Flex, mm, awesome. Is that me, like, how I feel? All the time, always, yes, definitely. But that's the type of thing, like angry resting face. Are you actually angry? No, not at all. Is that the way that some people look at us and think that we are? Yes. And what Jesus talks about is how this impacts us spiritually. It's because all of us can look at each other and look at people as you go today, and you can make a guess. Are they angry? Are they not? And who knows if we're going to be right or not? And what Jesus talks about in this story is sometimes where people made really clear judgments and tried to push off onto others really clear judgments they had of themselves, but were totally wrong. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 9. And this is where Jesus tells his story about angry resting face of the soul. And if you know angry resting face by something other than angry resting face, we don't say those words in church. So angry resting face of the soul, Luke 18, verse 9. And it says this, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. 
I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a good word. And I want to take apart the story. We're going to read through it again. And we're going to see how you and I fall into sometimes the tax collector, sometimes the Pharisee, sometimes both, which is difficult. But hey, we're good at stuff like this. Uh, Because Jesus has freedom for us today that he wants to bring us to today. And so Jesus starts the story, and he talks about people with great confidence in their own self-righteousness and and, and can't help but scorn other people. Immediately, like this type of person is repulsive to people like you and me. We don't like know-it-all. The only time when we like know-it-alls is when something's broken and we go onto YouTube to figure it out. And then if you're like me, you judge the person because in all of their money that they've gotten by monetizing stuff on YouTube, seriously, buy a tripod. Right? If you're going to teach me how to fix my water heater, don't shake the camera all crazy like. But we hate know-it-alls until we need one. And this person is a know-it-all. And that, that type of thing for us is immediately repulsive. The first person that Jesus talks about is a Pharisee. That's a church word that basically means it's the church version of a Karen. Right? A Karen shows up in whatever situation and knows everyone who's right and everyone who's wrong. And Pharisees can never be wrong. They can never be wrong. This is where our culture absolutely is, okay? Is you, uh, like all of us, we put ourselves on a pedestal or put other people on a pedestal and they are there until they say something, do something, tweet something, think something, Instagram something or Facebook something that is wrong. And then immediately, boom, done, gone. It's much easier to be able to live in a place where we can look at, e- look at ourselves, look at each other and say, hey, we're gonna do the best we can to do everything we can in a way that loves and affirms other people. And if we're wrong, we're wrong. Like the number one way that this happens in a daily basis is you walk up to somebody you know or more likely somebody you don't know and it's like this Russian roulette of how do we greet each other? There's the fist, there's the handshake, there's the from a distance and it's like for me, I know I have no clue what actually we're going to do until it's too late and I've already done the wrong one for you. <laughs> if I give you the fist bump, you want a hug. If I got a hug, you're like, nope. And, and like that's just reality. And that doesn't work for Pharisees because Pharisees can never be wrong. They keep score on everything and they exercise their rightness by pushing other people down. Like that's what Jesus got at in this situation. He says, Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own flesh and scorned everyone else. Dude, we don't like those people. That's not who Jesus is. That's not who we are as a place, as a church. Is when we're wrong and you know we're gonna be wrong because we have a pulse. We don't scorn other people. We wanna lift other people up to Jesus. The thing is, that's nowhere else in society. Everywhere else, it's like, let's keep score. Let's make sure everybody else knows how right we are and how wrong they are. We got a video that's going to demonstrate this. And this is satire, but it's barely satire. All right, let's go. Listen, we got Dr. Seuss. We got Mr. Potato Head, but I will not stop until we cancel every book and toy in this store. Old maid. Wow. Um, excuse me. Hi, Target. Yeah, can I get a price check on ageism? Oh, one of your favorites. Thomas the Train Engine. Burning coal. Terrible for the environment. Cancel. Treasure Seekers. Pirate ship. Wow. I didn't know Target supports robbery and kidnap now. Cancel. Okay, fun. Bicycle. Classic ableism. Oh, fish. As if overfishing is not a problem in many areas of the world. Cancel. Pac-Man. Hmm. 
Oh, hungry, hungry hippos. You know what? They are hungry because they're going extinct. It's like a half million COVID deaths and we're still playing with Gravedigger. Oh, Nerf guns. Might as well be real guns. Canceled. Oh, look at this fun basketball hoop. A white kid dunking. Now we're just lying to people. Oh, sorry. Well, unfortunately, if we discover anything you've done in your past, sorry is no longer enough. Canceled. Hey, you guys want to play a fun game about land ownership and discrimination? Good, because I'll get it for us. It's called Monopoly, made by Hasbro. Not surprising. Canceled. Right? Yeah. Like, we can never be wrong <laughs> unless we recognize who Jesus is. And if you're here and you're, you're checking this out, you're on the outside of who Jesus is and, and wondering what this is about, first thing is, is about acknowledging the one we are loved. And the second is that we're wrong. Like, there are things in our lives all the time where we do it wrong. And instead of, and, uh, instead of stepping into God's wrath, we step into his mercy, which we're going to get to in a bit. And so the Pharisee, he stood by himself why is he standing by himself? Because Pharisees and because Karens have no friends. Pharisees don't have many real friends. That's why he's staying by himself. One of Jesus' closest followers, one of the 12 who followed him everywhere, used to be a tax collector. So remember in the story five minutes ago, there's two people in the story. There's the Pharisee, the person who's always right, and there's the tax collector. He's got something going on inside where he can't even look to heaven. He beats his chest, and he says, man, I've messed up. God, have mercy on me. And so one of the 12 who followed Jesus the closest, his name is Matthew. And Matthew, before he followed Jesus, he was a tax collector. And uh, in that day, it was 100% worse than it is now because you took people, you took money from your people to give it to the Romans who were the oppressive regime over Jesus's people. And so what it meant for Matthew to be a tax collector was that he had completely turned his back on his people. And he had given everything he had. He had sold out in every way possible uh, to work for Rome. And so one day Jesus is walking through the city and he sees Matthew and he says, Matthew, I want you to leave your tax booth and I want you to come follow me. There was a Jew, it was one of his own people who, had, who hadn't turned his back on Matthew. And he invited him into following him. He, it's an invitation into relationship. And so the guy who's writing the story tells us that Matthew left everything that he had and he followed Jesus. And then as soon as that day's work was done, Matthew goes back to his house and he invites all of his friends to come out and meet Jesus. And Jesus is inside the party and there's a message that's sent to Jesus inside the party because Matthew found acceptance, he found love, he found somebody who says, I want you to leave your old life and come follow me in a way that was inviting, in a way that had, had authenticity to it that Matthew had never experienced before since he sold out his people. And so Matthew's there with Jesus and all of his friends, and Jesus gets a message to go outside. And it's from the stiff religious people. They're saying, hey, we weren't invited to the party, and you shouldn't be there either. They're nowhere near the party. They're nowhere near the fun. They're nowhere near people who are actually experiencing a relationship. Why? Because Pharisees have no friends. And I think it comes down to a few things. And if you say, like, you look at this and you say, these things aren't in my life, then I think there's growth for us. Friendship happens when we ask questions when we want to know more about the other person and what's going on in their life, then we just want to tell them about ourselves. Friendship happens when there's humility. And it's really hard to be humble if you can never be wrong. Those two fight against each other. It's really hard to have a need and still be a Pharisee. And that's another thing that relationship is built on is it's built on needs inside of us. If you sit here as you are right now and think I have everything I need, my life is absolutely perfect. You're also telling people you have no need for other people in your life. You have no need for friends. 
And so what's the, ta- what's the Pharisee doing? He's standing alone because he has no real friends. And so he prays. He says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people. I'm not a cheater, a sinner, or an adulterer. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. So third thing about Pharisees, Pharisees do all the right things because it helps them the most. I was thinking about this this week. Man, what Jesus says greatness is going to be, because this guy, he's got a good life. He fasts. He, does, he follows rules that we should follow. He gives money away, all these things that are good. The thing is, he's doing them to lift himself up. And in Jesus' economy, if we're going to be great, that means we're going to lift other people up. So Pastor Aaron referred to this about 20 minutes ago. He talked about the Live the Mission offering we took a couple weeks ago. And we didn't take that to lift other people up. We took that because we want people to know Jesus. We talked about that day, the 3.1 billion people on this rock who have never heard about Jesus. We want them to meet Jesus. And so we took an offering. And those of you who gave from here and from all the campuses, it told it up to $204,450.02. That's a lot. And the thing is, is that's not about the 90-some-odd people in here. We're not doing that for the 90 people in here. We're doing that for the 3.1 billion people who have no way to ever find out about who Jesus is. We're giving to that need. We're not giving to make us look better. And that was the Pharisees' problem, is they pushed other people down. In their day, their understanding was Rome has come in and crushed us. And the reason that Rome crushed us was because all of you did everything wrong. So we're going to do everything right. And if you're like us, everything's going to be fine. You need to be more like us. That was their motto. And so what that does is that pushes people down. And the thing about all of us is is if we think that we are the ones who are going to solve every problem, we've forgotten our own history. If we think that we are the answer, we've forgotten our own history. This morning in Shape, Shape is our church's Bible reading and journaling plan. We got to read Romans 5, which is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, And it said this at the very end. It said, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Cool, good stuff. Thanks for being here today. But, which means that something better is coming. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Saying God, God demonstrates his greatness. He demonstrates his love for us. That while we were sinners, while we had absolutely nothing, Jesus came into the world to die for people like you and me. And he did that because he's demonstrating for us that the way to get to heaven, the way that God demonstrates perfection, the way that God demonstrates holiness isn't by saying, man, I am amazing. It's by making other people amazing. And we do that as we tell them about Jesus. That happens as we share in the gospel, the the good news that Jesus saves sinners, that we don't get to God because we're amazing. We get to God because Jesus came into the world to pay for our sins, to bring us into a relationship with Jesus. And the Pharisee lost that. But the tax collector, he had different issues. The tax collector stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow. Tax collectors understand their need for God. They understand their need for God. For this guy, the need was personal. Like this awareness was personal. It was physical. Jesus says at one point that the devil came into the world to steal, kill, and destroy. And I think about my life, and I think about the ways that he's done that, the ways that relationships have been murdered, that things have been stolen from me, that areas of my life have been destroyed. Like, there are people I don't want to talk to because of ways that we've interacted in the past. 
There's things that I like, need to clear my head first before I walk into it because I know my history, because I know my need for God. And if I was to, to be like a Pharisee and forget my own history, there are so many areas in my life that I would have to just completely gloss over because I understand my need for God. I understand that on my own, I am not the answer, but Jesus is the answer. I was talking with one of you before church uh, about Regen, which is our church's discipleship and recovery program. Uh, and there we go. We got multiples in here. Um, and if you're thinking, I, I don't need recovery. I'm just fine as it is. Do you have a pulse? Okay, then you need recovery. Uh, and this thing is not just for drugs and needles and all that stuff. It's to, to make right in our lives the areas that sin has made wrong. And Jesus knows about all those. And so what we're doing is we're stepping into what God has already made abundantly clear, that we have a need for God. And I want to be honest, the more you grow in love relationship with God, that's not going to be something that gets forgotten. That's going to be something like I said a few minutes ago. We become more and more used to the fact that we're wrong. There's apologies in our lives that we get good at saying, not because we need to cover our bases, but because we are aware of our need for Jesus in our lives. That I know that if I'm going to mess up in a relationship, it's probably going to be around one of a few areas. It's going to be around anger. It's going to be around comparison. Or it's going to be around just me not telling you something and completely messing you up because I don't communicate well. Yet, I communicate for a living. So, there you go. But we become, we become aware of our need for God. And that awareness is personal. And so the guy prays, he says, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. Tax collectors, they identify themselves by their sin. Okay, this is the opposite of the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood up and he says, I am so great. This is everything I do. God, you should be so grateful that I'm on your team. And the tax collector does the opposite. And for us, there's a point where we need to understand our weakness, but there's also a point where that goes too far. There's a point where it goes too far. Media team has a picture. Uh, this is the earliest picture I can find of uh, myself. That's my great-grandpa, my grandpa, uh, my dad, who looks a lot like Freddie Mercury, uh, and me. And, <laughs> and at this point in my life, like I had basically not sinned at all because I had no control over what I was doing. But the thing is, is that little boy, that little boy, had basically everything that I am ever going to do already written on my heart as God looked at me. God knew what I was going to do. So that cute little baby could be described as this by God. Let's go to the next picture. Okay, I'm a God hater. I'm an adulterer. I'm an anti-Christian. I'm a workaholic. I'm a bad kid. I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I'm an envious jerk. That's all 10 commandments right there. I've nailed them in my 39 and a half years of life. But the thing is, is God doesn't look at you and me that way. God looks at you and me as children. The tax collector was halfway right. He said, I'm, I'm, once he said, he beats his chest and he says, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. That's true. But Jesus completes the sentence. I'm a sinner who's been made right with God. Jesus looks at you and me the same way that I can look at that picture. And Jesus says, you know what? That's true, but that's not you. Right? That's true. All those things on there are true, but that's not you. Okay, hear that for yourself today. That is true, but that's not you. Yeah. Right? Say that to somebody next to you. That's true, but that's not you. That's true, but that's not you. And if you didn't do it the first time, do it this time. That's true, but that's not you. Because Jesus finishes the sentence. We identify us by our sin, but Jesus identifies us by the cross. 
That's where he came into the world to pay for our sins. That's why Christians love crosses because that's the moment where God came into our life to make us like him, to forgive our sin and bring freedom to us. Jesus does that because tax collectors realize they can't save themselves. Tax collectors realize they can't save themselves. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's where mercy comes in. We don't have a relationship with God. We're not exalted because we did the right thing. We're exalted because Jesus came into the world for you and me. He took our sin, our worst, on his perfection and traded with us. He takes all of our sin and we get all of Jesus's righteousness. For those of you who have lived too long in the identity of I'm the tax collector who cannot stand before God because I need God's mercy, I'm still a sinner. What I want you to receive today is the fact that just as Jesus took your sin and you can't control that, you ask for it, it is done. He puts on you his righteousness. You are not a mistake. You are not a disaster. You can't stand in here, beat your chest, keep your head down because you're unworthy to look at God. That's half true. The second half is the fact that Jesus comes in and makes us worthy. Jesus comes in and covers our life with his mercy. He realizes that we can't save ourselves and so he saves us. And we leave, we go into the world, we leave the moment where he asks Jesus to come into our life, we leave that as exalted children of God. Because that's what Jesus says. Those who humble themselves, us saying, okay, God, I realize I'm not the answer. I realize I have sin in my life. I want you to forgive me of my sin and come into my life. That's humility. We leave as exalted children of God. And Jesus has mercy on us and he saves us when we realize our need for him. The message of the story is that Jesus is saying, you actually need me. You actually need me. To the religious person, he says those same words, but he puts the emphasis different. He says, you, you, you don't need your performance. You don't need your track record. You don't need your history. What you need is me. You need me. It's not just something extra you put on top of your already amazing life. You need me. You can't escape it. You need me. For those of us who have done church for decades and you knew everywhere where I was going in this passage because you've heard it all before, you still need Jesus. You can never memorize or accessorize or just make every slogan part of your own life to the point where you no longer need Jesus' forgiving work in your life. We will always need Jesus, need Jesus. And to the tax collector, the person who has nothing together in his life, what Jesus says is you don't need a help program. You don't need another strategy. You don't need other input from other people or a new plan on how you're gonna make right. You need me in your thought life, in your spending life, in your sex life, in your substance life, in your relationship life, in your family life, in every relationship that you can think of, what you need is me. That's what Jesus says to us. And in this, Jesus is calling sinful people to repent of our sin and religious people to repent of our religion. He's saying there is hope for everyone because Jesus is hope for everyone. And whether we're on the religious side or whether we're on the sinful side, I think regardless of that, the answer for us is to be around people. So if you feel totally defeated, you've already accomplished step one of how to no longer be a tax collector or how to no longer be a religious person because you're here sitting around people who have very little in common with you. 
except that we need Jesus. And that's what we get to model individually and corporately, is that we're coming from the tax collector side, we're coming from the religious person side, no answers, all the answers, we're coming to lay everything that we are at the feet of Jesus, who loves us, who gave his life for us, and who calls us into relationship with him. Let's stand and pray.